0: Today on Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares.
1: If we confess our sins, he is, what's the word? He's faithful and he's just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Then why would we sit back and why would we wait? Why would you wait another hour to give to God your petty little sinful toys? Why not just say today, look God, it's done.
0: What is it that holds us back from confessing our sins? Sometimes it's shame. Other times we assume it's no big deal and brush it off. But as 1 John chapter one, verse nine says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Well, today on Focal Point, Pastor Mike Favares is highlighting just how merciful God was to David after he confessed his sins in 1 Samuel 29 and 30. Well, let's dive in.
1: Have you said perhaps my good health, promotion at work, this nice neighborhood I live in, these good things, are perhaps a sign from God for me to think, hey, am I really being as kind to God as He's being to me? Am I really living my life in a way that pleases Him as much as He's purposing to please me? We need to think about that. Something good happens in your life. Perhaps it's not God's overwhelming, joyful approval of how you're living your life. Perhaps it's a way to say, wake up. Maybe it's time to do a little self-assessment. Search me, God. Try me. Know my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me. Is there something in my life that you're trying to wake me up to by these kind gifts? Are you trying to say to me, look how kind God is to me. Perhaps I need to be kind to God in this area of my life that I haven't been kind to God in. I put it this way in your outline. Number one, you and I need to start considering how merciful God is to us. We need to consider the mercies of God. We need to start pondering the fact that there are good things in my life and perhaps that is the cue for me to start thinking about how good I can be for God. Hmm. Consider the mercies of God. David had a three-day walk back from the battle lines to his home in Ziklag in southern Philistia. It took three days for him and the 600 soldiers to get there. And I'm just wanting, as I read this passage, for him with every step along the way on that dusty road to start to recognize, look how God saved me. Look how God spared me. Look how good God has been to me. So that perhaps in contemplating his goodness, he would be moved to repentance and stop living such a dualistic, phony life. But let me tell you, as you look back at 1 Samuel, that if strategy number one doesn't work, (laughs) God's got another strategy. He is so zealous for you to be holy. He is so passionate about you letting go of your compromises that if he can't win you with his kindness, he'll win you with his severity. Look at it, verse number one, chapter 30. The text says, David and his men had reached Ziklag, their hometown. On the third day, apparently the kindness of God did not overwhelm David to drop on the road and repent of his duplicity. We don't read of that. I'm sure the narrator would put it there if it happened, but it didn't. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. And they had attacked Ziklag and they had burned it. And they had taken captive the women and all who were in it, both young and old, They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. Can you imagine? They're approaching their hometown, and on the horizon, they see a little smoldering smoke floating up into the sky. And when they get close to the city, they see that all the homes are burned, the walls are knocked over, their town is desolate, Expecting the hugs of their children and the kisses of their wives, these 600 men with their leader, their duplistic, hypocritical leader, walk into town and find everybody gone. Can you imagine the devastation? Verse 3, read about it. When David and his men came to Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire and their wives and their sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. This is another strategy of God. And if God has poured kind things into your life to try and get you to look squarely at that compromise and forsake it, and he can't get you to do it, he's got a strategy that most of our parents were pretty good at, (laughs) and it's called pain. And it's pain in the most severe way, because this kind of pain is not a scar that he got in battle, not some footache he got on the road home. It's the kind of pain that when we love people like our wife and our children, that God, as our heart dangles outside of our own body, as as it lives in the lives of those people in our home that we love so much, you know how vulnerable you are? God can use those people in your life to create a kind of pain that I think rivals any kind of physical pain. It's the pain of watching my child suffer or seeing my wife chronically ill. God can use that, and historically he has used that, to try and get his servant to recognize and confess and forsake his sin. And they were utterly dismayed. They wept and cried until they couldn't cry anymore. They were out of strength. Weeping, crying. Got parents here. You got those kids at home, kids in the nursery, children you love so much. God can use those people and pain in their lives to get you to recognize a problem in yours. It wasn't about his wives not watching over their shoulder. It wasn't about the kids not you know, being more careful. It wasn't about the Amalekites, those nasty, dirty, terrible people. It wasn't about the Philistines who dragged us out into the desert to fight the, the Israelites. It was about him. David, it's about you. It's not about your kids. It's not about your wife. It's not about the armies of the Amalekites or the Philistines or Saul. It's about you. And it's important for us to start to wake up to that fact that if God doesn't win us with his kindness, he'll win us with his severity. And I've said this many, many, many times, but let me say it again. You may not believe in spanking, but God does. And he will pull out the paddle and apply it to your life in a way that that very much hurts you until you drop to your knees and repent of the compromises in the corners of your life. He wants you holy. How bad does he want you holy? He will even allow suffering in your family to get you to recognize your sin. That's how passionate he is about you being a holy person. I'll put it this way in the outline. Number two, you and I need to learn to respect. And I'll put it in the future tense because I'm a hopeful kind of guy here. All right, you ready? You need to respect the pain he could bring. I'm hoping you haven't reached the stage where he's applying it, but perhaps you have then you need to respect the pain he's bringing. (laughs) But from this point, if you would, if we could just imagine that maybe God is showering us with kindness in our lives because you all look well-dressed and healthy and in your right mind in this auditorium. So perhaps what I'm trying to say to most of us is respect the pain he could bring. If he's displeased with an area of your life, man, he's going to change it. And he's going to change it either by overwhelming you with his love and his kindness and his gifts, or he's going to overwhelm you with his loving discipline. And it's equally as overwhelming. As C.S. Lewis said, it's the kind of voice from God you can't ignore. And God speaks to us in our pain. And I want you to respect it. Put your finger here. We'll be back to this passage in a minute. But turn over, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. It reads this way. Since you call on a father, and that's so endearing, isn't it? And it ought to be. He is our dad, our spiritual father. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here. What's the deal? He's keeping track. He's watching. He cares about my behavior. So live as strangers. What does that mean? Detached from the values of this world and the way they do work and their business ethics and the way they live life and the way they treat their families. Live differently. Strangers here in, and your NIV has two words, but it's only one word in Greek, in phobos. Fear. NIV translates it to help us recognize there are some distinctions in this word, but reverent fear, to fear God. Now, a lot of us grew up in, you know, church, and we know. I mean, we graduated from Sunday school, and we're confident that, you know, because we've learned verses like in 1 John chapter 4, perfect love casts out fear, right? So we don't fear God. He's my buddy. He's my friend. He lives in my heart. We walk day and night, you know, we toss flowers and lilies on the road, and we're just so wonderfully just comfortable with each other. But you know what the Bible says? If you don't have fear for God, there's something wrong in your Christian life. Because you and I need to fear. And what does that mean? Perfect love casts out all fear then. Read the rest of the verse. If you ever get back to 1 John, don't do it now. But the passage says that kind of fear involves punishment. And that's not discipline. That's retribution. That's wrath. I have no fear that I'll be condemned in hell. I'm not going to purgatory and I'm not going to hell. Because I'll never incur the wrath of God because the Bible promises me there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ. I'm not going to reap the wrath of God. But I'm going to get spanked a few more times, I'm quite sure, until I meet him because he is a God who disciplines us. And there's a huge distinction between retribution and chastisement. There's a big distinction between those two. And the NIV has done us a disservice in Hebrews chapter 12 where it talks about the fact that he punishes every son he receives. That word punish is not punish. It's not retribution. The word is the word to scourge or to whip or to spank. And the text says, don't consider it a light thing. Don't think lightly of the Lord's discipline because those he loves, he disciplines and he scourges. He whips, he spanks every son he receives. I don't fear that God's going to get even with me. He got even at the cross. I fear that God will spank me if I'm not sensitive to the promptings of his spirit to eradicate the sin in my life when I'm compromising. I fear his discipline. And I hope if you grew up in a healthy home, you had a fear for your father. Not a fear that he was going to beat you up in the back alley and leave you bruised and beating and get even with you for the pain you've caused him, but that you feared the fact that if you got out of line and you weren't repentant, that you are going to incur a little pain in your life from him. And that's the kind of healthy fear we need for God. I fear God. You should fear God. What does that mean practically? Number two on your outline, we ought to respect the pain he can bring. I got a wonderful wife and two kids. And I'm presumptuous to think that it's my wife and my kids. Go back to the scenario, 17-year-old crashes your car. You say to him, okay, here's what you're going to do. You're going you're to deal with this. You're going you're to read some driving books. I don't know what you come up with. But one thing you add to his list is, because I love you, I'm going to discipline you. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the car keys away. And you're not going to be able to drive the car for three months. That's your, that's your verdict. Bam. And you do it because you love your child and you say, you know, you could get hurt, you could hurt other people, you could kill yourself, and you need to learn a lesson taking a car back. Now picture that 17-year-old throwing up his hands, ah, it's so unfair, man, that's not fair, that's not fair, (laughs) right? Forgetting, of course, that you bought the car, you pay for the car, you insure the car, you put gas in the car, right? But it ain't fair you're taking your own car back. Now, listen to me. You and I have got to recognize everything we have in our life is not ours. God never signs over the deed to anything. Your wife is God's person. Your children are God's children. Your job is God's job. Your home is God's place. Your car is God's means of transportation. And if God wants to take anything out of your life that he's put in it, he's got the right to do it. Just like the absurdity of a 17 year old saying, it's not fair for you to take your own car back. For me to say, hey, you got no right to cause grief in my life by making my children sick. What are you talking about? God gives my children health. If he wanted to take it away so that Mike could wake up to the reality of some kind of sin in his life, he can do it. Now I'm not suggesting that every pain and every problem and every disease and every sickness is God's discipline, but you'd better make sure and rule it out. You see what I'm saying? You better make sure that you're checking. We've talked a lot about discipline in 1 Samuel because there's a lot of discipline taking place in 1 Samuel. So it's important for me to remind you to respect him. Have that reverent fear. If you want to use that qualifying word, fine. Have a reverent fear. Respect the pain he could bring. David walked into a town weeping until he couldn't weep anymore. And it got worse. In the passage it says, This discipline and spanking from God was so severe that not only were David's wives not exempt, Ahinoam and Abigail both were taken captive, but it says in verse 6, David was greatly distressed because the men were, were talking of stoning him. They were going to kill him. And he's just utterly at the bottom of his rope. Each man was bitter in his spirit because of his sons and daughters. They'd been taken. It was the bottom of the bottom. Well, something great happens in verse number 6, the very bottom phrase in verse 6. You have an NIV. Here's how it reads. These words are, are powerful. I know it's not constructed grammatically in any... I mean, it's really a nondescript way to say it, but it's huge. The text says, but David found strength in Yahweh, his God. David found strength. But David found strength in Yahweh, his God. Now, that doesn't come as a big, big, big verse to you. It's because you haven't been paying attention. Because in chapter 26, that was the last time we heard David praise God, worship God, uh, pray to God, seek God, talk to a priest. We haven't seen him do anything since then. For a year and four months... He has been checked out. The narrator wouldn't even put God's name in his mouth in the written narrative. We see it in the mouth of the Philistine kings, but you never see David praying. You never see one psalm in the Psalter that's attributed to David during this period of his life. We see no prayers. We see no worship. We see nothing. And then like a breath of fresh air in the middle of this dark passage, After all the kindness God had poured out on him and after all the discipline God had poured out on him, David was finally broken. And he says in the bottom of verse 6, God, help me. I love the way Josephus puts this, the Jewish historian, as he describes this situation. It says, when David recovered himself out of his grief, David raised up his mind to God. That's a good way to put it. He finally just opened his eyes and said, God, help me. We haven't seen David say much like that. And he repents and he confesses and he, in his act of seeking God, turns over this new leaf in his life as he comes and drops before God in brokenness. And it gets better, verse 7. David says to Abathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. Now the ephod had to be dusted off, I'm quite sure, at this point. This, this breastplate thing of the priest that they would use to find out what God had to say. Because we don't hear him talking about that. We don't even hear him talking to the priest. We don't see him asking for God's direction or seeking his direction. But he says, I need God, and I need to hear from God. Bring the ephod. Abathar brought it to him. Verse 8 says, David inquired of Yahweh. Even if you just read this passage with a sense of how dark a vacuum it has been for so many chapters, and you see David and God's name side by side, man, it's a time of rejoicing. And you can bet the angels in heaven were finally throwing a party because David's eyes are finally open. Finally. He's going to give up his sin, his little secret compromises, his, his convenient sins. inquires of God. Shall I pursue this raiding party while I overtake them? You see that in verse 8? Look at the bottom of verse 8. God says, who who are you talking to? Me? Uh, You seem to be doing pretty well on your own out there. You you don't need me. You haven't been praying to me. You haven't been talking to me. Where have I been in this whole thing? Yeah, right. And turn to me now? You're in a real fix now, right? Real problem? Hmm. Well, we'll see about that. You see all that there in verse 8? Why don't you see that there? Because that's not what God does. The text says, God responds. And I'm sure there wasn't a second between the question and the answer. God is so quick to say, David, I'm here for you. Pursue them. You will certainly overtake them and you will succeed in the rescue. Wow. I don't know if you've ever, in a relationship with someone, recognized the wrong, you've done something, you've said something, you've violated the relationship, you come and you pour out your, your... Confession and you say, I'm sorry and forgive me, and I've blown it. You do that in a human relationship, and it's a crapshoot as to how that person will respond, isn't it? I mean, we're not sure. You sincerely repent, you could be embraced or you could be shunned. You could have the arms crossed and say, Yeah, well, hmm, I don't know about that. Or you might have someone reach across the table and give you a hug. You don't know because people you can never tell about. But let me tell you something. If you balk just a little bit at dropping your secret sins at the cross this morning, because you're not sure how God would respond because you've been really bad or it's been a long time or you've really messed up this time, remember this simple principle from James 4. The text says, draw near to me and I will, what? Draw near to you. Sometimes, most of the time, four out of five times, nine out of 10 times. I'll think about drawing near to you. No, the text is super clear. NIV puts it this way, come near to God and he will come near to you. Is that a sure bet? That is a sure bet. Number three on your outline, be assured of God's response. You and I need to be assured that God is going to respond in a positive way when sinners leave their compromise at the cross and they say, God, forgive me, I've blown it. It's been a long time and I've been doing business this way for a long time and this relationship, I'm ready to leave it here. You can count on this. God will not reproach you. God will not say, well, we'll see about that. You got to prove yourself to me. God is going to be there to embrace you because the Bible's real clear. You come near to God, he will come near to you or to put it in terms that we learned when we were little kids. The Bible says, if we confess our sins. He is, and I love the Bible puts words that we need at just the right places in just the right time. If we confess our sins, he is, what's the word? Faithful. What does that mean? Consistently reliable. You can bank on it. You can count on it. You can trust in it. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and he's just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Then why would we sit back and why would we wait? Why would you wait another hour to give to God your petty little sinful toys? Why not just say today, look God, it's done. Is he trying to win you with his kindness? Perhaps you're in that chapter of your life. See, in the middle of spanking you right now, pain in your life? Is the pain caused by compromise? Maybe you don't even see the natural connection, but is the pain perhaps caused by God seeing an area of compromise in your life? Then you should know this, that if this morning you said to God, God, it's over, I'm sorry, it's done. God will throw his arms around you and he will receive you and there is no doubt about it. Sincere repentance is always met with forgiveness. Always, this message will do you no good if you haven't identified an area of compromise. If you don't know what a convenient sin is in your life that you're currently committing, then this message is purely academic. So I'm going to give you one more chance. And just you and God, 30 seconds, give him full reign. Let him search your heart right now and say, God, what is that compromise? What is that convenient sin? I want you to point it out and then if I can summarize the whole message in three words if you would just use his kindness his severity and his forgiveness as motivations to drop that sin and say God it's yours then this will be a red letter date in your life say God search me area of compromise, convenience, sin, point it out and once you find it you know what to do. God is so kind He's so stern. He's so forgiving. I'm going to leave it here today.
0: Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. The final verses of Psalm 139 summarize this message well. You're listening to pastor, author, and teacher, Mike Fabares, and this is Focal Point. Now, if you want to download the PDF study notes or listen to the full-length message, you'll find them online at focalpointradio.org. Just look for the message titled, Learning to Let Go of Convenient Sins. Focal Point is here to provide you with biblical answers to the questions you face every day. And did you know that as you listen right now, you're joined by thousands of others across the country, maybe even around the world, who are tuning in on the radio, the Focal Point mobile app, on our website, or through various podcasting options. All these are completely free, and that's because listeners just like you give to cover the cost. We're counting on folks who share our passion for straightforward Bible teaching to help support this ministry with a financial gift. Now, if you believe in this work, then please give today by calling 888 320 or donate online at focalpointradio.org. We're so grateful for your support. And to say thanks for your gift, we'll send you a book about what it means to love God's Word. It's called How to Eat Your Bible by Nate Pickowitz. Request your copy by calling 888 320 or give and request the book online at focalpointradio.org. If you prefer sending your donation by mail, write to Focal Point, Post Office Box 2850, Laguna Hills, California, 92654. And before we go today, we'd like to invite you to join our online community of believers. Find us at focalpointradio.org slash connect or follow us on social media at facebook.com slash and twitter.com slash well i'm dave drewy inviting you to join us again thursday when we continue exploring the depths of scripture right here on focal point
1: Hey there, Pastor Mike here. We're almost out of time, but before we go, I wanted to personally invite you to contact us here. Let us know how we can be praying for you. Head on over to focalpointradio.org and click the contact page or send me a note on Facebook, facebook.com slash Pastor Mike or twitter.com slash Pastor Mike. Can't wait to hear from you.
0: Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.